This morning we are in the section of Deuteronomy 14 that deals with tithing. Insert congregational groan here. There you go. Now if you've been here a long time, you know that I rarely speak directly on this topic. I don't know the last time I did it outside of a, a congregational meeting. Uh, but as we go through the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, I'm required to teach what's there and exegete scripture. That's what a, a good pastor does is exegete the text in front of him. And so this morning, in most of your Bibles, there in verse 22, can anyone read to me what the heading says right above it? Tithes. So unfortunately, here we are. And there are few topics that spark as much emotional reaction in the church as the topic of money. Whether it be Ananias and Sapphira lying to the apostolic church, or whether it be popes defrauding the poor to build St. Peter's in Rome, or whether it be televangelists using the checks of poverty-stricken followers to pay for their own private jets, the ideas of money and the church are like oil and water. Unfortunately, that has created a problem. Because to add insult to injury, it is usually the case, based off of national statistics, that because there has been so much wrong in the church with fraudulent heretics using money wrongly, that then convinces people to not give to those who aren't fraudulent heretics. And unfortunately, it makes the church weaker because of it. So here are some updated national statistics that show that this is the case and that giving to churches is decreasing drastically. And it's part of why the church in America is dying. Let me tell you uh, some statistics from the group called Nonprofit Source for Giving in 2018. First is, in most churches across America, we're not talking Burkina Faso here, guys. Uh, I almost thought about playing a picture of what tithing looks like in Burkina Faso, where they play music while all the people dance up and give a tithe. And then they sit back down and then they play another song and they stand up and they go and give another tithe for the poor and the widows, right? And this is in a country that is usually somewhere in the top five of, of poverty-stricken countries in the entire world. But I didn't do that. Let me just share some of these things with you. This is American churches. In American churches, tithers only make up 10 to 25% of any congregation. On average, Christians give 2.5% of income to churches. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3. Of families that make $75,000 or more in the American church, only 1% donated one-tenth of their income. 1%. Religious giving has gone down 50% in the last 30 years, and it is still consistently shrinking. Baby boomers make up 42% of the donor population, of the church, but only 30% of the general population. Generation Y are 31% of the population, but only make up 7% of the donor population. And I won't even tell you what the millennial statistic is. In other words, unless something changes, more churches will close as baby, baby boomers die and church funding dries up. That's the American church in a nutshell. And this has resulted in the growth of mega churches, all the small churches die, but the large churches seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger as behemoths, simply existing. Why? Because of economies of scale. Mega churches, in essence, are the Costco or the Walmart of church. You get enough people through the doors, you can mark everything down, and as long as we get a few hundred people to tithe, we can keep the doors open. One of the main reasons that mega churches do well is because they're organizations that can exist in this kind of an environment. Now what that should mean for our church is that we should definitely not be able to afford the mission that we're on. 
We shouldn't definitely be able to afford roofs in Africa. We definitely shouldn't be able to afford our own building. In fact, it is amazing that we even exist with an adult average attendance of 130 adults and 70 children, all non-tithing units. Man, kids are expensive, aren't they? None of this should be possible. Absolutely none of it. But dear brothers and sisters, I stand before you today to say that is not the case for this church. This morning, as we look at what Scripture says on the topic, some of you might have been like, oh man, tithing, this is going to be bad. He's going to beat us up. Here's the reality. I don't have to. I don't have to do what most pastors have to do because of you. I don't have to stand here and cover this topic, yelling at you and saying, give more. I don't even have to do what I had to do a few years ago, begging over 50% of our church to give something, anything. I don't have to do any of that. You know why? Because you are faithful. You are a faithful congregation. Remember those numbers I told you before, 10 to 25% of the congregation? Let me tell you what this church is doing. I am in the amazing position of being able to say, as we go through this text today, that I am so thankful for this congregation, so proud of this congregation, so proud of the leaders of the church because we are showing over the last year that we are a generous group and a group that desires to give consistently and steward well that which is given, and it's only increasing. 80% of the member households in this church give regularly in the last year. 93% of member households in this church have given at least once in the last six months. That's a huge number, guys. That's why you can do, we can do what we can do. And a number of you who are not yet members, you give very generously as well. This is amazing, Mission. And you should praise the Lord for what he's doing in your own heart and in the hearts of the people around here. Look around you. This is not a large church. And yet God is doing amazing work through the people at this church. So well done. Amen? Well done. And it's not to get you to pat yourself on the back, but to show you that a healthy church is not always a church that's giant. And a growing church is not always a church that's growing in attendance. Sometimes it's growing in maturity and faithfulness. And so as we discuss this topic this morning, the Holy Spirit may bring conviction to some of you to give more. It may bring conviction to some of you to give more regularly. It may bring conviction to a small percentage of you that don't give. Uh, but for many of you, what it will bring is affirmation of the reason you give of your offerings to the Lord through this church and through other ministries. And if you're visiting today, I thank you for your grace on a tough topic, but hopefully you will see our desire to be obedient to the Word of God and our desire to be a part uh, of the generous church that is Christ's church. And so, so just so that you know our desire to be transparent to you, the body, uh, with the money that we all give, any of you are welcome to ask to sit down with our leadership to look at finances. Or even if you're not a member, you are welcome to attend our upcoming congregational member meeting on April 20th, 20th and you can gain some insight through our quarterly financial update that we give there. Uh, we are very open with our finances, so if you want to ask, feel free. So this morning, here's my plan. I want to look at this text within Deuteronomy in the larger context of the Old Testament and the surrounding culture. I want to understand the baseline motivation of offerings to the Lord, and I want to then take it and pull it into the New Covenant and see how we are to interpret it and apply it. Does this sound like a fruitful plan?
You guys good with that? Yeah. What I am not saying by congratulating us and patting us on the back is that we don't need to keep doing it. Uh, one of my friends who's a pastor, he got up and did something similar, and he told me a story about how the very next week was their lowest tithe in like five years. Everybody was like, hey, we got enough money now, <laughs> right? That's not actually how it works, but we're going to just go through tithing and understand it this morning. So awesome. Let's get, let's get going and see what, uh, see what we're looking at today. What I'm calling the message is this, a tribute to the king. You can write that down. A tribute to the king. So let's read Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. It says there, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before Yahweh your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain or your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear him, to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, liquor, wow. Whatever your appetite craves. We'll get to that in a minute, don't worry. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Well, the first and pretty obvious statement we can make here is this. The idea of the tithe comes from the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament does not explicitly command tithing. And many people are confused by that, but I'll hopefully clear that up a little bit today. The words at the beginning of this text are eser to eser, right? The way Hebrew works is this. When it wants to emphasize something, it repeats it twice. And when they wanted to indicate emphasis here, they use the word eser, which is a word that comes from the feminine form of the word for ten in Hebrew, and they did it twice. They basically said, give a tenth, give a tenth, right? And so if this were to be translated literally, it would probably come out this way. Surely you will accumulate a tenth of your harvest to give, right? That's the literal wooden reading of what's there, you shall tithe, okay? Surely you will accumulate a tenth of your harvest to give. And what they were supposed to do is take it to the place where God would place his name, the temple, the tabernacle, the place where you'd go to worship Yahweh. And this was the singular place of worship for the Jews. And there they would hand over a tenth of their harvest. Now, the wording is a bit abrupt here, as it seems, just reading it straightforward in English and the ESV, they would take, in most cases, this massive amount of seed, right? Um, Let's see, how many blueberries did you do last year? Lots. You you did multiple truckloads, right? Say that again. There we go. Hundreds of thousands of pounds. So if you even had, you know, 10,000 pounds of blueberries and you sat down to try and eat that, would that make you pretty sick? Yeah, it would make you. You'd have about as much super fruit as you could get, but it would make you kind of sick, right? You couldn't do it. Well, same thing's true here. They would harvest, and it's not like they would take all of their, all of their tithe and go and eat all of it in one sitting. And so the, the wording is a little bit abrupt. What they would probably do is they would take it, they would give it to the temple or the tabernacle, they would take a portion of it, and they would engage in a meal 
with the Levites and the people surrounding the temple, uh, the community of, of Israel, and they would celebrate God's goodness and provision. Now, in reality, this text from Deuteronomy leaves out some information, and that's why it's a bit abrupt, because it's simply a retelling of what's already been told in Leviticus, multiple places, and in Numbers. Um, and so this is not a new command. This is not a place where they go, okay, give us all the information. So let's look at just a couple of those. I'll put them up on the screen here. The first one is Leviticus 27. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's his. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe, in other words, there's interest, so to speak. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So there's a little bit more info there in Leviticus 27. In Numbers, uh, this is Numbers 18, it says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance. So a piece of the tithe, as we'll talk about in a second, went to the Levitical priests. Why? Because they had no job other than serving in the tabernacle, and so the people provided for their income. It's in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance, for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. Our text here in Deuteronomy 14 is a repetition of these laws and many others within Leviticus that give greater detail around the sacrificial system and tithing and how everything was supposed to work, what the various portions were, what went to the priest. You guys confused yet? Anybody happy we don't have to do that anymore? Absolutely. I would be so confused. There are whole discussions of the description of the communal feast that should be occurring at the temple as well. So in total, this is what we know. The people were commanded to accumulate and save a tenth of their harvest, and they were to bring it in the temple, the place where heaven and earth met, in which the king of Israel, God himself, dwelt by his Shekinah glory. And there they would have this large meal rejoicing in their covenant relationship with God. And this is what the phrase, fear the Lord your God, meant. It was that they gave weightiness to their covenant relationship. And they needed to be purposeful in fulfilling their portion of the covenant because God was always faithful to his portion. Now, just as we've discussed before, the people of Israel were going into the land and they would be spread out further than they were during the wilderness wanderings where they were right around the tent. You guys remember talking about that a few weeks ago? So what happens if an Israelite is at the far borders of the land and their tithe of produce or their livestock won't make it? It'll spoil before it gets to Jerusalem. Well, God graciously gives them a second option. He says, take what you have, sell it in your town, turn it into money, take that money and take it to Jerusalem. Now, in this day, they didn't have minted currency, but they had things like silver and gold that they would use to barter and trade, and they'd bring that to the temple. And so they'd separate that off, that piece of their tithe, they'd take it to the place of temple, the place where God dwells, and there they would give a majority of the tax to the temple, but they would take part of it and they would go buy something to have a really good party. Literally, that's what it says. And what was that party for? Celebrating the goodness of God's covenant faithfulness to his people, his provision, and the fact that they had one another in covenant commitment. Does that sound like anything we do once a week at the table? 
That's exactly where we get the idea of communion. That's exactly where Jesus got the idea of sitting together with his disciples, sharing a meal together, celebrating the covenant of Yahweh. Now, in the days of Jesus, this system was still operating, but it had been perverted by the Pharisees as they were using it to make a profit by manipulating the people. They would take their money, um, they would go to people who had just absolutely fine sacrificial animals, and they'd say, that one seems a little bit off. Why don't you trade it in? We'll bump the price up, charge you some interest, and give you a new one, and then you can sacrifice that. And the Pharisees were all building gigantic houses and living off, you know, if they had them back then, they'd probably have big jets to fly all over Israel, right? Um, And this law was used to abuse people, not to help them in their worship. And so Jesus went in, and what did he do? He cleared the temple. He said, you guys are making my father's house a house of thieves. And unfortunately, I think many Christians and Christian leaders need to sense the same fear that those Pharisees felt when Jesus was turning the temple tables. God is not pleased with using his command to give offerings to the Lord for purposes of selfish gain. We try really hard at this church to not fall into that. Well, third, we see that this law detailed in Deuteronomy was to remind the people that there were actually two tithes. Did you notice that? Verse 28 there, there's a secondary tithe. There was the annual tithe, or really the tithe taken each harvest, right? Each time there was income, they would take the tithe out of the moment of God's provision. And then every third year, they would take another tithe for the purpose of caring for the vulnerable populations. Now, why was it once a year and not once a week like we do now or once a month like we do now? Well, because once a year was when you got your income, right? If you're a farmer and you work your whole year to harvest the crops and then you get paid in one lump sum, if you're a farmer in here, we're not expecting you to have 12 checks written out for the year, right? Same thing here. They would give one time. If you're a person that gets paid weekly, which I don't know that many people that are, well, then you've got to harvest once a week. Get paid twice a month, you've got to harvest twice a month. Does that make sense? And so you have a yield and you give from that yield. Anytime there was provision, you gave from it. But then there was this other tithe. Now, there's great debate by people far smarter than me that have tried to figure this out and they can't. They argue about it. But the argument usually ranges that the actual tithe that the, uh, that the Israelites gave, according to their checkbooks, so to speak, was 13 to 14%. Or others would say there's two years at 10 and a third year at 20. Right? That's basically what we're told here. And so it doesn't clear it up. It just says that they were generous and they were probably giving more than 10%. And the point there is that the people were to use a portion of their offerings in generosity to those who were unable to make their own living because they were without land in this day. Remember that land is how you made money. You didn't have land, you didn't farm, therefore you didn't make money. So who are the people that it lines out? Well, interestingly enough, it says the sojourner. Why? Because somebody who's traveling doesn't have land to farm on. So it's not like they were a beggar on the street. They literally didn't have a source of income. There's the widow and the fatherless, and they could not own land because this was a very chauvinist society who said only men can hold land. And so the widow or the the fatherless, they had no land to gain income from. And then also it says the Levite and the high priest is part of that Levitical priesthood. They had no land because their inheritance was to work within the tabernacle and later the temple. And so they had dwellings within various designated cities, but they had no land inheritance on which they could draw a harvest. That's why it speaks to these folks. And so these folks that were without income were to be cared for by the rest of society. 
And the local elders within each local town were to be the ones that would steward this distribution and give it out to those populations. So what was the tithe for? Well, three things. Number one, provision for the running of the temple. Provision for the running of the temple. For a place that that the sacrifices could be done, the worship of Yahweh could occur. Second, provision for those who were without income, including those who served within the temple, the Levites. And third, a celebration of the grace of God in the midst of the covenant community. That's what tithe was used for. But here's the really important part that is often missed. If we keep this within the religious realm and we don't look at the greater cultural phenomenon that was going on at the time, we miss why they gave the tithe. I'm so amazed whenever I talk to people and I say, so why do you, you know, I don't do this that often, but every once in a while I've had this conversation, why do you tithe? Well, because you're just supposed to. That's, that's obedience to Jesus. And I always look at those people like, really? Man, you have a better heart than I do. If somebody gave me that reason, I'd be like, forget you. I worked really hard for this money. You tithe because somebody told you to? Man, your heart is way less rebellious than mine, right? You might be thinking, Hans, that's why I tithe. Well, let me give you an even better reason why to tithe. If we miss the cultural surrounding perspective, we miss why tithe was important. Why tithe differentiated the Israelites when in fact other cultures around them were giving tithe. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. Second major point is that the Israelites based the tithe on a historical background of a tribute to a sovereign king. The Israelites based the idea of tithe on a historical background of a tribute to a sovereign king. It wasn't just because God showed up and said, tithe. It was because God showed up and said, I am your king, I am your authority. And you show me that in part through the tithe. A very normal part of ancient Near East culture was something called vassal rule. Everybody say vassal rule. How many of you are familiar with this idea? Okay, a few of you. Oh, the two teachers, three teachers in the room. There we go. Cool. Okay. And our awesome historian over here. All right. A few of you understand this. I'm going to walk you through it this morning so you can. This is where a king from a larger kingdom would conquer a smaller people And the conquering king would put in place a vassal king to rule in a way that gave glory to the higher king. It's easier to remember. Remember this, the bigger king called the suzerain, just remember me, okay? Bigger, taller, okay? Now, if you had somebody super short, like one of my children, picture them, the vassal, right? Somebody smaller, bigger, suzerain, smaller, vassal. Everybody got that? You're thinking, Hans, you're boring me with with, uh, history. It will... uh, It will be important here in a minute. Just keep going with me. So here's an example from Scripture itself. When Assyria had conquered Israel, so Assyria was the suzerain, Israel was the vassal, and they turned Israel into this vassal kingdom. Here's what it says in 2 Kings 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. So he's the king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. So in other words, he was trying to buddy up to the king of Egypt to attack, attack Shalmaneser, and Shalmaneser heard about it. He had given no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria 
and for three years he besieged it. To show the higher king that they were indeed the higher authority, vassal kings would regularly bring a tribute offering to show their fear of the power of the larger king. And Hosea did not do this here. Did it work out for him? No, not at all. Throughout the ancient world, this was a known practice. And the only difference with Israel was that their tithe was given to priests rather than administrators of an earthly king. They did this because the priests were the administrators of the true king of Israel, who was what? Who, who was who? Yahweh. He was the king. Now remember the story of Scripture. The idea of kingdom is found throughout. And it's hard for us as Americans to remember this as we read Scripture. All the way back in Genesis, remember the job of Adam and Eve? Do you guys remember what it was? Play in the garden. No, not at all. That was not their job. This is what Genesis 1, 26-28 says. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That's a kingdom word, guys, right? Kingdom, dominion. Kingdom, dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So have lots of babies. Just for the purpose of having babies? No. Why? To fill the earth and subdue. That's a conquering word, guys. Subdue it and have, what's that word? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This idea of dominion and subduing is vassal kingdom language. And so if the suzerain, the sovereign, is Yahweh himself, who's the vassal here? Mankind. Mankind was to be the vassal kingdom. Now, as part of this, there was to be a tribute. And this helps explain why Cain and Abel brought an offering tribute to Yahweh at the eastern edge of Eden in Genesis 4. And it gives us an understanding of the ridiculous nature of Cain's attitude and rebellion. There was no fear of the Lord, the king, at all in Cain. Humanity was to be the vassal rulers of earth and declare the ultimate authority of God. Now, what this should do for us, guys, is this should make Deuteronomy make a ton of sense. Why? Because do you remember what Deuteronomy is structured like? I've said this many times as we go through it. It's structured in the form of an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty, where the larger king, the suzerain, makes a peace treaty with a conquered people, the vassals, to sit under his provision and respond by giving him worship. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy 12 and take a look at 12.4. Deuteronomy 12.4 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, like the other people worship their gods, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offering and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings and freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet as, come, uh, not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. This makes tons of sense as well, because it's not just saying go to the temple and do these things religiously. It's saying that God will establish his throne in one place on earth, and those that are to be his people will bring their tribute to him there. So here's what we have. The suzerain was Yahweh. The mediator was the Levitical priests. 
and the vassal kingdom was Israel itself. So what we must understand, what we must understand, dear brothers and sisters, is that the underlying idea of the tithe actually speaks to a very important issue. It speaks to one question. Who is king of your life? Who is king of your life? This is the issue at stake in the story of Abraham back when he was named Abram in the story of Genesis 14. Turn there with me. Go to Genesis 14. The idea of who is king of your life. Now, honest poll, opinion poll here. This is Genesis 14 where Abram and Lot and battles and Sodom and Gomorrah and there's this dude named Melchizedek that brings out wine and bread. How many of you have read this before and been completely confused by it? Anyone? Oh, three of us? Okay, cool. Anybody else? Yeah? Okay, most of us. You guys are probably just finding your spot. Here's Genesis 14, 1 through 4. We're going to walk through Genesis 14 a little bit, and I'll show you why this idea of tithe is so important speaking to who our king is. Genesis 14, 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorolamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. What are we talking about here? We're talking about suzerains and vassals. Kedorlaomer is the suzerain. Now, I thought about having Tyler read this section, but I didn't want to have him have to go through all these names. I thought that would be kind of mean. But all these weird names here, what are they? They're kings of kingdoms. The highest king is Kedorlaomer. He's a Persian king, and the rest serve him as vassals. They're still kings, but they're like sub-kings. Now, a few of the kingdoms got sick and tired of being vassals, and so they band together to rebel against the suzerain, Kedorlaomer. Now, two of those rebelling kingdoms were Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, because Lot was very wealthy, they were in the midst of uh, the battle. And they got taken captive and were heading back to Persia. Somebody ran over to Abram and says, Abram, your nephew, he's gone. Take a look there at verse 10. Okay? It says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen or tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell in them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy, Kedorlaomer, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's, Abraham's uh, brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Ener. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard this, his kinsman, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So one who escaped came to Abram, who was extremely wealthy and had a ton of male servants, and told him what happened. Abram pursues the army and somehow, by the grace of the Almighty, defeats them, brings back the possessions, some of which are the possessions of the king of Sodom. Now, what usually happened on the playground when you were playing king of the hill and someone new knocked off the reigning champion of king of the hill? 
who would become the new king of the hill? The person who beat him. This is what happened here. And so the natural response of the king of Sodom who was defeated should now be to realize that he is a vassal of Abram. And Abram should now be the king. But notice where Abram points his worship and how he does it. Take a look there at verse 17. After Abram's return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Salem, Salem was Jerusalem, another name for Jerusalem, right near that same area. All of these people are coming out to not say, good job, Abram, high five, let's tweet about this. No, that's not what's happening. They're coming to lay at his feet and say, you are the king, we are your vassals. And so Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What? And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, I'm going to give you this tribute. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. That's a way of saying I am in covenant with the Lord. Anytime L-O-R-D is capitalized in the Bible, what is the Hebrew name behind it? It is Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. I have lifted my hand in covenant, in oath to Yahweh, El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, the English here totally destroys this because that wording there is the same wording that's used for the word tithe. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's a word that is, a that is associated and strongly related to eser, the word for tithe. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So what is going on here? Well, the king of Sodom wants to worship Abram by making him rich, giving him a tithe. But he says, no, I promised through an oath that I would give my allegiance to the one I worship. And who is that? The one who is represented by Melchizedek. He is the priest of Shalem, or Shalom, the prince of peace. And his name, Melchizedek, is a derivative of two words in Hebrew, Melech and Sedek. You guys remember what tzedakah means? Righteousness. Melech means king. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. Abraham could have rightly said, I am the new suzerain king. Everyone bow at my feet. I defeated Ketelaramur. Jerusalem, Sodom, Gomorrah, you all give me tribute. But instead, he says, no, I will not rule and decide what is right and wrong. I have given my covenant allegiance to El Elyon, the one who has true rule over heaven and earth, the creator God known as Yahweh. And he says, you know what his name is? The Lord, God most high, Yahweh, Yahweh El Elyon. Abraham was preaching. Preach on, preacher man. He was preaching. He was fulfilling the very job description that Adam failed at. What was Adam's job? Go throughout the earth and display my image and tell people who I am. Nope. He decided to do what he thought was right. He went with his own feelings of selfishness. But what did Abram do? Abram showed up on the scene and he does what, Abram, what uh, Adam could not do. He evangelizes the lost by saying, 
hey guys, you know who my king is? Yahweh, El Elyon, God Most High. The Israelite law of the tithe was not based on some ambiguous religious law of God. It was based on the suzerain vassal understanding of the tribute to a sovereign king that rules. Now you might say, great Hans, that's really cool background, thanks. But the new covenant did away with the idea of ceremonial law. So why do we need to even think about this? We don't need to keep tithing, right? Well, hopefully my next point will answer that in this. Well, there we go. There's the picture. I skipped a couple of, <laughs> I skipped a couple of uh, uh, slides there. Here's the next point. Our tribute to the king becomes more apparent in the New Testament, not less. Our tribute to the king becomes more apparent in the New Testament, not less. If you have this situa- situation where the suzerain is Yahweh El Elyon, and the mediator is this king of righteousness, Melech Tzedek, Melchizedek. And the vassals are Abram and all mankind. It doesn't take much for us to look at that and say, what is that pointing towards? Oh, all those in faith, the vassals, go through the mediator of the king of righteousness. Who's that, folks? Jesus Christ. In order to give glory to the true suzerain, the Father God, Yahweh, El Elyon, the God Most High. And so our tribute to the king becomes more apparent in the New Testament, not less. You guys following with me so far? It is true that there is no direct command to tithe in the New Testament, but we do not get rid of the idea simply because of that. Let's instead look at a couple of truths. The first one is, I want you to write down what Jesus' statement on tithing is. Here's Jesus' statement on tithing in Matthew 23, 23. He says to you, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And Jesus does not tell the Pharisees to get rid of tithing. In fact, his statement seems to be the proper, that proper worship of Yahweh requires tithing and works of sacrifice that are harder in practicing acts of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Oh, how much the American church needs to hear this. 75 to 90% of the American church needs to hear that you even tithe. And many of the people who tithe sit in churches that are gigantic and they come in and go out and hide and they think that by paying their tithe, they're paying staff members to do works of righteousness and justice. The American church is upside down when it comes to worship of Yahweh. What Jesus said is do both. True followers of Yahweh are people that tithe, give their tribute to the king, have the temple work go, and then also acts of righteousness and justice in their own lives. Well, the second thing we can look at in the New Testament, just quickly, is we can notice the use of generous giving by the church. In eight places in the New Testament, the church is commanded to care for those who are in need, and they follow the same pattern of tithing here from Deuteronomy 14. For example, this is one passage of the eight that I could give you. Look at the general heart of the church. This is Acts 4, 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed, the entire church at the time, were of one heart and soul. Oh man, how I wish that were true today. No Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and we start foot washing with the left foot and we start foot washing with the right foot and we're contemporary worship in your hymns and da, 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 da. No, they had one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, guys, this is not a direct command. If you're like, dang it, I got to go sell my house and give it to the church. That's not what this says. What it says is that they were willing to sacrifice so that no one was in need. So one of the main uses of the finances of the early church was to care for those in need. A second use was to support those who preach. And I know this sounds very self-serving. You all pay my salary. I know that. But this, was, this is what the, the word says. It was to support those who preach the gospel full-time because they can't have regular income. Jesus twice quotes from the idea of the Old Testament that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Paul speaks of the need to care for those who spend their lives in service of God's people as full-time elders and missionaries. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, this is New Testament, guys, temple service get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now notice that does not say private jet. Nor does it say multi-million dollar home. Nor does it say resort by the river. It says that they should get their living, have their needs taken care of by the gospel. And I thank God for you because you guys do. You help my family and I live. So a second main use of the finances was to care for the full-time servants of God's uh, servants in the temple. And what is the temple today? It's the church. So think back with me to Deuteronomy 14 that we're studying this morning. What were the three uses of the tithe? Provision for the running of the temple, care for those who were without income, including those who served within the temple, and celebration of the grace of God in the midst of the covenant community. Dear church, what we should use the offerings for in the church today are exactly these same things. Should we use it for jets and waterfront mansions and the latest fashions to keep our pastors on the cutting edge of Instagram? No, we shouldn't. And praise God that you don't have one of those pastors, as you can see today, right? I'm not worried about ever being on Instagram. What we use the tithe for is these same three things. Provision for the full-time servants of the church of God, provision for the ability of the body to gather together in the midst of covenant community and care for the poor among the body of Christ. And so this is why we give benevolence to those of you in need in the church um, when you need it. This is why we give to our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso and Haiti who don't have income. You see, Jesus never removed or negated the tithe as he did other ceremonial commands. And the original church was to use the giving of the people in the same way as the temple tithe. That's what the New Testament compares in looking at the Old Testament. And so I believe that we can easily see that the command to give generously is still required of us, and it's still for the same purpose. It's a tribute to the sovereign king that we serve. But even more important than this, even more important than these three reasons that I've been talking about, is this heart of why we tithe. And so I want you to write this down, the last point this morning. At the heart of tithing is the simple question, who is your king? At the heart of tithing is the simple question, who is your king? I had a wonderful brother ask me recently, he's a student, he goes here, he said, you know, I get paid once a, once a year in the summers when I have a job. 
The rest of the time, I don't get paid. He said, what should I do for tithing? I feel bad every week. I said, well, pay the one time in the summer and stand in good conscience knowing you've given a tribute to your king. For those of us who get paid every other week, every other week, give a tribute to your king and stand in good conscience knowing you've done so. Remember the story of Abram and Melchizedek that we just read? Abram was giving a tribute to the true king of kings, Yahweh, through his high priest at the time, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, or at least the type of Melchizedek. And remembering that reading that Tyler did before the teaching that says that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, we can look at Hebrews and start to see how blatant it is that the same truth applies, that we are giving to Yahweh through our sacrifice towards Jesus. The author of Hebrews has even more to say on this topic. So turn with me to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. Let's take a look at it there. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, Melech, Tzedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. He's not saying that the guy Melchizedek at the time was actually without father or mother. He's saying that as it's written in Genesis, he's a type, he's a picture of Jesus that it doesn't state his genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In other words, Genesis leaves us with this idea of this random figure who just exists as a priest and he exists forever. And so the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to him. Verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent, uh, descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the author of Hebrews here is using a literary tactic of typology to say that we can learn something from this priest Melchizedek. That Jesus' priestly line is greater than the line of the Levites because just as the book of Genesis gives this snapshot of the earthly priest who has no beginning and no end, Jesus, in reality, has no beginning and no end. He is not like the Levitical priesthood who had to have successors every year because the priest died. Jesus is living, always has been, always will be. And so this whole section is about Jesus and his role of being eternal high priest for us. But contained within this is the use of the tithe as an indicator of who was given the highest honor. Now, now please hear me. Good exegesis of this passage will tell you that this passage is not about tithing. Not at all. But it uses tithing as an indicator of the greater honor that should be given. And the author says Abraham and all the Levitical priests that descended from him are lesser than the priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. 
And so if it was right for the Jews to give to the Levitical priests a tithe to Yahweh, how much more right is it for us to use the mediator, the true king of righteousness, the king that died for our sins and mediates on our behalf? How much greater is it to give him a tribute in the honor of Yahweh? Why is Jesus worthy of this level of honor, this level of tribute? Because Jesus did what the sacrificial system could never do. The sacrificial system existed as a way for the covenant people of God to atone for their sins against the God who saved them and rescued them from Egypt. But they had to offer those sacrifices of bulls and goats year after year after year after year. But Jesus, once for all, who would accept his sacrifice and give their allegiance to him by faith, Jesus acted as the priest and the sacrifice by dying on the cross of Calvary to atone eternally for your sins and mine. He died in our place. The death that I deserve, the death that you deserve, because we are pervasively depraved. And no hope of heaven or reconciliation with Jesus. He took my place. There is no light in my heart save what Jesus has placed there. We know that what he did for us was not only sacrificial, but it was successful because three days later, three days later, he resurrected and proved that he was the victorious king over all the kingdom of darkness. And after 40 days of being seen by over 500 witnesses, Jesus ascended to the position of the right hand of El Elyon, Yahweh himself, the one who has authority over heaven and earth. He sits in this position of authority uh, at the right hand of the Father God, the Supreme Creator, because he was given reign over his kingdom. And we have been conquered and brought into his kingdom of light as his citizens and subjects. And Jesus lives today just as much as he did 2,000 years ago. And so it is right to give him tribute. It is right to give tribute to our king through his church. If you believe in the false gospel that says, say a prayer, acknowledge Jesus as Savior, and then one day when you die, you'll get to heaven, but nothing is required of you in this life, that is a false gospel. It is not true. What the Bible dictates is that Jesus has ascended as king, and he expects our response as such. And that while justification requires nothing of us because it's all his blood given on the cross, sanctification requires everything. Dear church, why do we need to give a tribute to our king? I'll take a look at Hebrews 7.22 there. This all makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. He is our constant high priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, amen? 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, the things that were at the tabernacle and the temple, they were weak sauce in comparison to the temple that exists right now in this moment in the heavens, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ, the Messiah, which means anointed king, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Dear church, when we give to the work of this church or any other church, when we give to missionary endeavors, when we give to evangelistic endeavors, we are giving not to an organization or a nonprofit business. We are giving a tribute to the king this church serves. The one sitting at the right hand of the Father, the one who died for our sins and was enthroned as our king. And the leadership of this church, as best as we possibly know how, we try to steward that money toward three things. Care for the vulnerable, the running of this church, and the income of those who are full-time servants within this church. And in so doing, we are attempting, the best we know how, to give tribute to our king. Is tithing necessary for salvation? No. Is tithing an obvious response to the saving work of God that gives glory to him as our sovereign king? Absolutely. The justification of Christ required nothing on our part. Jesus has saved us by grace through faith, but sanctification requires a response of sacrifice and laying down who we are in selflessness. Giving of tithes and offerings, it strikes at the heart of selfishness. It speaks directly to who our king is. When the world looks at you and says, you give 10, 12, 14% of your income away? What is wrong with you? What is your answer? I serve a king, a king who died and resurrected and is coming again. Dear brothers and sisters, the topic of tithe isn't one to debate. It isn't one to, using a bad pun, to nickel and dime. Tithing will not make us rich. It will make us financially poorer. But it will loosen the death grip of selfishness, pride, arrogance, and worldliness on our hearts. And it will point our hearts toward our King. Tithing will not gain us favor with God. It is a response to the favor He has already freely given us by His grace. Tithing is right and true and good because our King deserves a tribute. I want to finish with this. These are Jesus' words in Luke 16. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the stuff we have on this earth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I think he's speaking to pastors there. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. Dear church, the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's been enthroned and has brought us into his inbreaking kingdom. My question for you today is this. Is Jesus your king? Let us give tribute to our king. If you don't, today is your chance to start. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to be standing in the back during worship, and I would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, to follow him as a citizen of heaven, to walk with him and give your life to him. I would love to do that. For most of you in this room today, as I said at the start, you should be affirmed in why you give what you give. Your king sits in glorious majesty, receiving your tribute, knowing his position in your life. Not just because of tithe, but because of the purposefulness with which you live your life to give him glory and honor. He is pleased with you. He rejoices with you. And he can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. 